Welcome to the podcast, Unbecoming. I'm your host, Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson. Just a reminder that Unbecoming is on Twitter at OnBecomingPod and Instagram at OnBecomingPodcast. Our email address is OnBecomingPodcast at gmail.com. If you have any comments or suggestions, please send them our way. If you're finding the podcast helpful in your own journey of becoming, please consider following or subscribing to the podcast. If you'd like to support us, please do so at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or paypal at onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. That's our user address. Thanks to those of you who've subscribed or follow us, to those who've written, and to those who've decided to support us. In the previous episode, I introduced and discussed the phenomenon of religious trauma. In this episode, I'll be talking about recovering from religious trauma. My hope is that for those of you who've experienced this for yourselves, my reflections may be helpful for your own journey. However, an additional hope is that if you haven't experienced religious trauma, perhaps my discussion will better help you understand what others, such as your friends or people who are only marginally in your church or people who've already left your church, have been or are going through. Alas, so often the response to someone going through a crisis of meaning about evangelicalism or Christianity is that such people should pray more or read their Bible. These are, to put it mildly, really unhelpful responses. I want to begin this episode by considering an article in Psychology Today titled Cognitive Impairments Can Promote Religious Fundamentalism, written by Bobby Azarian. Perhaps I don't need to say this, but I do realize that Psychology Today is a popular magazine, not exactly where one would find the kinds of complex arguments and ample references to primary sources found in academic journals. But it's a place to start, since there's so little out there on the phenomenon of religious trauma. Actually, this article isn't exactly on religious trauma, so I'm reading it in a different way than the author likely intended. The article begins with a reference to the study in the journal Neural... Psychologia, titled Biological and Cognitive Underpinnings of Religious Fundamentalism. The authors start with the assumption that since the ventromedial prefrontal cortex is at work in religious beliefs, a lesion or damage to that area would be found in people with fundamentalist beliefs. Their hypothesis is that patients with such lesions would be less capable of cognitive flexibility and openness making them more likely to hold to beliefs that would count as fundamentalist in nature. Azarian summarizes their conclusion by saying, the findings suggest that brain damage to this particular area indirectly promotes religious fundamentalism by diminishing cognitive flexibility and openness, a psychology term that describes a personality trait that involves dimensions like curiosity, creativity, and open-mindedness. He goes on to say something else that, if you've been listening to the podcast regularly, you'll probably realize is problematic. He sets up a dichotomy between what he calls empirical beliefs that he says are, now I'm quoting from him, based on how the world appears to be and are updated as the new evidence accumulates or when new theories with better predictive power emerge. That's certainly the hope that one has in doing science, though I've already suggested that academics aren't necessarily more open to new thoughts than other people are, and no scientists aren't magically better at this than philosophers or historians or sociologists. 
As you would expect, he contrasts this supposed characteristic of science, being open to new ideas with religious beliefs that, to quote him, are not usually updated in response to new evidence or scientific explanations and are therefore strongly associated with conservatism. They are generally fixed and rigid, which helps promote predictability and coherence to the rules of society among individuals within the group. One problem with this account is simply history. The reality is that religious ideas change and develop over time, which means that assuming that how you interpret a particular passage of a holy text is how people have always interpreted it is probably only partially right and could be completely and utterly wrong. But let's expand this a little further. We need to keep in mind that many of our values about how we should treat other persons as well as other animals are ones that aren't easily challenged. If you believe that people have equal rights, it's hard to think of any scientific findings that would make you stop thinking that. That's not a value based on anything scientific. It is, of course, related to experience. The better you get to know people whom you assume aren't like you, different religion, different race, different country, different continent, different sexual orientation, etc., the more likely you are to see them as like you in the important sense of what you share together as human beings. It's also the case that one can adapt to thinking differently about what equal rights might look like in practice. It wasn't all that long ago that women in society, for instance, were treated very poorly. Admittedly, the show Mad Men is fictional, but I think they do a very good job of portraying just how differently men and women were treated back in the 1950s and 60s. There's still a lot of work to be done in terms of equality, but the strides since then for women, for racial minorities, for the LGBTQ plus community are very real. Of course, the Dobbs decision, which overturned the Roe versus Wade decision, reminds us that progress can always be undone by those who, for one reason or another, want to keep things unequal. The researchers were interested in what's called cognitive flexibility, which is basically about the brain's ability to entertain different concepts and think about different things simultaneously. Zarian goes on to say, cognitive flexibility allows organisms to update beliefs in light of new evidence, and this trait likely emerged because of the obvious survival advantage such a skill provides. It is a crucial mental characteristic for adapting to new environments because it allows individuals to make more accurate predictions about the world under new and changing conditions. The basic assumption of the researchers is that since fundamentalism is a kind of rigidity in thinking, fundamentalists would likely have brain damage or lesions in the prefrontal cortex. However, the real question here concerns not merely correlation, but causation. What caused these lesions? Neither of these articles answer this question, probably because it's not really something that can be answered in a simple sense. Yes, if you've had a brain concussion, such damage would have an easy explanation. But I don't think anyone is suggesting that fundamentalism requires a concussion. In defense of the authors, I would point out that they explicitly say that cognitive flexibility and openness are variables that account for one-fifth of variations fun in fundamentalism scores. Azarian speculates that, in some cases, extreme religious indoctrination harms the development or proper functioning of the prefrontal regions in a way that hinders cognitive flexibility and openness. I'm not sure how you would ever prove that, but it sounds like a reasonable explanation. 
Most children spontaneously ask all kinds of questions, often to the annoyance and frustration of their parents. But one can discover that questions aren't welcome and may gradually decide to stop asking them. For me, I came to realize that not all of my questions were welcome. Perhaps that stopped me from asking questions I should have continued to ask, though my own experience is such that most of these questions went underground, which is to say I still had them, but I now knew they either couldn't be mentioned or they could only be discussed with people who weren't afraid of such questions. From my experience, I would say that fundamentalism and fear usually go together. Unfortunately, fundamentalism is not found merely among religious people. When Christopher Hitchens says that religion poisons everything, that's a crazy fundamentalist statement, if ever I've heard one. The first two words, religion poisons, could be reworked into a reasonable statement. No one who's doing any serious thinking is going to say that the effect of religion has been 100% good. But to say that it's 100% bad is, at least in my eyes, a crazy claim that can be discredited pretty quickly. Put another way, even if Hitchens were still alive, I'd have no interest in debating someone who makes crazy claims like that and then sticks to them no matter what the evidence is. That's a fool's errand. Cognitive openness is an important part of being human. If it just gets shut down, then we become less mentally healthy. Since this podcast is titled Unbecoming, the goal is to have an appropriate level of cognitive openness. Since what that might be isn't immediately clear, let me try to clarify things briefly. Human beings couldn't operate without beliefs, but the trick is to be open to altering those beliefs due to new evidence or a higher level of understanding or perhaps some, something else. While rejecting a previously held belief may be in order, more likely are modifications to existing beliefs. However, even for people with cognitive openness, the process of moving beyond one's current way of thinking can still be difficult. In the previous episode, I cited Marlene Winnell in her book, Leaving the Fold, a guide for former fundamentalists and others leaving their religion. This is not an academic text. It's more of a self-help book for people who are starting to rethink their religion or who've changed their beliefs, yet are still feeling unsettled. My own experience, as in my own personal experience, and also the experiences of many students who've shared their struggles with me regarding their religious beliefs, is that the intellectual part can be relatively easy. You come to a place where you think, ah, that doctrine just seems wrong. However, recognizing something is wrong or incorrect intellectually is a very different thing from breaking from that view emotionally. In the previous episode, I mentioned that Nietzsche recognizes that convincing our rational brain may leave our intuitive brain unconvinced. He says that we have to learn to think differently in order at last, perhaps very late on, to attain even more, to feel differently. Winnell puts this difficulty as follows. Religious indoctrination can be hugely damaging, and making the break from an authoritarian kind of religion can definitely be traumatic. It involves a complete upheaval of a person's construction of reality, including the self, other people, life, the future, everything. People unfamiliar with it, including therapists, have trouble appreciating the sheer terror it can create and the recovery needed. You might think that terror is too strong a word for this kind of recovery, 
But you need to keep in mind that for those of us who grew up in a family in which religion is central, moving away from it is like a paradigm shift in which the old way of thinking about the world is seen as no longer viable. And that's a little frightening. In his book, The Structure of Scientific Revolutions, Thomas Kuhn provides ample examples of scientists who found it difficult to leave the old paradigm behind. In other words, it's not just religious people who get attached to their beliefs. It's a pretty common human phenomenon. Or if you want a different example, when Erasmus first published the New Testament in Greek in 1516, there were many theologians, particularly at the university where I did my doctorate, who were alarmed. You might think, wouldn't theologians welcome the New Testament finally published in the original language? One reason is simply this. At the time of the publication, very few theologians knew Greek and even fewer knew Hebrew. That meant they were basing their theologies on the available Latin text. With the publication of the original Greek text, along with a revised version of the Latin text, many of those theories became problematic or simply no longer viable. Imagine if you had been a theologian who had become famous and now your theology rests in ruins because new information, well, actually much older information, has now made your theory untenable. One of the difficulties of religious trauma is that most of it flies under the radar. Winnell writes the following, In my view, it is time for the mental health community to recognize the real trauma that religion can cause. Just like clearly naming problems such as anorexia, PTSD, or bipolar disorder made it possible to stop self-blame and move ahead with treatment, we knew to address RTS. The internet is starting to overflow with stories of RTS and cries for help. On forums for former believers such as xchristian.net and on YouTube, one can see the widespread pain and desperation. In response to my presentation about RTS at the Texas Freethought Convention, a person commented, Thank you so much. This is exciting because millions of people suffer from this. More people are coming out to talk about this issue. Millions who are quietly suffering and being treated for other issues when the fundamental issue is religious abuse. Winnell points out that psychologists normally ask patients questions about family, medical, educational, occupational, and other areas of personal history, including alcoholism and mental illness in both the patient and the patient's family. But there's little inquiry into religious background. Yet as Winnell makes clear, and now I'm quoting her, if a person had to attend a mind-controlling church several times a week, go to a religious school, perhaps be homeschooled, and conform to strict codes of behavior and belief for years on end, this is hugely important. Put in those terms, one is left wondering whether to laugh at the people who don't seem to realize that this might actually be a component of one's mental distress, or cry that people who are suffering from religious trauma are instead being diagnosed with other sorts of things that prevent an accurate diagnosis. Winnell lists what she calls the key dysfunctions of RTS. The first is cognitive. She describes this aspect as confusion, difficulty with decision-making and critical thinking, disassociation, and identity confusion. The general idea of confusion should be reasonably obvious. One has been taught a certain set of beliefs about the world, and suddenly some or many of those beliefs drop away. Being in the midst of a personal paradigm shift isn't easy. 
Depending on the degree of indoctrination, discovering the art of critical thinking may be difficult, for questioning or expression of doubt often cuts one off from one's community. Losing one's community while also changing one's beliefs means one's identity is changing, perhaps drastically. The second aspect is affective. Winnell mentions anxiety, panic attacks, depression, suicidal ideation, anger, grief, guilt, loneliness, lack of meaning. That's a shocking list, but I don't think she's incorrect. For instance, you might feel anger at your community for duping you into believing things that aren't true, or just as likely feel anger at yourself for not figuring out sooner. Let me add here that if you're in this place at the moment, please try to be gentle with yourself. Give yourself the permission to ask questions, to think outside of whatever box has been built around you. Guilt is another one of these phenomena that can go either way. You might find it had to do with certain things, the sorts of things your former community condemned, without having a sense of guilt. In the previous episode, I quoted a 51-year-old college professor who had long left her fundamentalist religion behind, but was still feeling guilt about certain things. But one might also feel a sense of guilt for being gullible. Loneliness should be self-explanatory. Though let me add that my own break with my former community means that in practice, I have almost no contact with people still in that community, though I do have contact with many former students. As to grief, even if your former community was highly dysfunctional abusive, leaving it behind may still be difficult. After all, these people were your friends, perhaps your relatives, and yet you now have the sense that you need to leave, or perhaps the sense that you are no longer wanted. The third aspect is functional. We now mention sleep and eating disorders, nightmares, sexual dysfunction, substance abuse, and somatization. All of those, I think, are self-explanatory. However, the last one, somatization, connects back to the points made in The Body Keeps a Score. Mental distress, such as depression, can manifest itself as bodily pain or other physical ailments. I experienced enormous back pain beginning in 2011 that continued on for years. I can't even count the number of doctors, chiropractors, therapists, acupuncturists, and other medical professionals I eventually met with. Eventually, one of the therapists said to me that she thought I had the kind of pain that wasn't physical in origin. She literally handed me some photocopied pages about the views put forth by John Sarno, who developed a diagnostic term of tension myoneural syndrome, TMS. I'm only mentioning the technical term in case you want to explore this on your own. You should know that while Sarno has many attractors and his views are still outside of the mainstream, he likewise has a roster of famous patients who've hailed his treatments as life-changing people like Howard Stern and Larry David. Put simply, his view is that mental distress can cause physical ailments, particularly in the GI tract and one's back. Sarno's view is that TMS is the result of the psychological repression of emotions due to abuse or lack of love, perfectionism, being highly morally conscientious, among others. As I say, Sarno is not part of mainstream medical practice, but the same is true for religious trauma, as we've just noted. While I have no medical authority to pronounce either way regarding Sarno's views, I think we're moving into a new paradigm in which the mind and body are seen as closely linked. 
The fourth and final aspect is what she terms social-cultural, which she describes in terms of rupture of family and social network. Even if you're in an abusive relationship, you might be hesitant to make a clear break from your church, your family, and your friends. But a breakdown of such relationships may also result in the kind of financial difficulties often associated with divorce. If you're really intending to leave your religious community behind, then you're faced with trying to build a new community or find one in which the new you now fits. For many people leaving behind a very strict form of religion, moving to a less strict form may be either a landing place or a stepping stone to something else. Here are a few descriptions of what people have experienced in leaving their religious community behind. Person 1. It took years of overcoming terrific fear, as well as self-loathing to emancipate myself from my cult-like upbringing years ago. Still, the aftermath of growing up like that has continued to affect me negatively as a professional. Nightmares, paranoia, etc. Person 2. The world was a strange and frightening place to me. I feared that all the bad, nasty things that I had been brought up to believe would happen to anyone who left the cult would in fact happen to me. Person 3. Even now I still lack the ability to trust very easily, and becoming very close to people is something I still find very alien and hard to achieve. Alas, these kinds of experiences are merely the tip of the iceberg. In her book, Shattered Assumptions, Ronnie Janoff Bullman speaks of three basic assumptions that most people have. First, the world is a good place. Second, the world is a meaningful place. Third, I am worthy of being part of that world and worthy of being cared for by others. Without these assumptions, it would be difficult to function. Of course, fundamentalist kinds of religion tend to portray the world as fundamentally bad, perhaps even ruled by Satan. Similarly, fundamentalist religions proclaim the world is only meaningful if one adopts its perspective. If you give that up so the veiled threat goes, you lose any sense of meaning. Put otherwise, the alternative to evangelicalism is often proclaimed to be nihilism, the view in which there simply is no meaning. As to being worthy, Nietzsche notes that one of the primary functions of religion is to proclaim that you, because of sin or something similar, are not worthy, and thus you need religion to make you worthy. There have been others who have added to Janoff Bullman's list. We've been talking about religious trauma, but there's a closely related form of trauma, what's called betrayal trauma theory, or shattered assumptions theory. This is the view that victims of trauma, religion or otherwise, unconsciously do not allow themselves to see that a fourth assumption about the world, that people can be trusted, turns out to be incorrect. Of course, this raises profound questions that have to do with self-deception, a very complex and difficult phenomenon. Ostensibly, to deceive yourself would require both knowing that something is the case, while at the same time refusing to see it. Exactly how this works, though, is complicated to work out, doing to the relationship of this knowing and yet not knowing going on at the same time. I think self-deception would require an episode or a short series on its own. In the time remaining, I want to mention Daryl Ray, a psychologist who founded an organization titled Recovering from Religion. 
It's an organization that provides those leaving an oppressive religion with therapists who understand the dynamics of such a situation. Ray says that most of his patients are able to adapt to their new circumstances in about three years. It takes about five years to get over the fear of hell. To be honest, both of those timelines sound extremely optimistic. You might think I'm being negative in my assessment here, but I think it's much better to realize at the start that this process is going to be difficult and that it may take a long time. I often think about removing myself from the evangelical world as taking place in steps. You can stop going to church, for instance, but that won't necessarily mean that the beliefs instilled in you as far back as you can remember will simply disappear. Ray puts it this way, and I find it very helpful. When you were five years old and learning English, you never stopped to ask your parents, why weren't you learning German? You just learn it. The same is often true of religion. When you're taught about hell and eternal damnation at ages four through seven, these strong concepts are not going to easily leave you. Just like it's hard to unlearn English, it's hard to unlearn the concept of hell. Actually, the analogy Ray is using may be even stronger than what he's just said. For learning English, at least growing up in America, may also mean learning unconscious prejudices, such as English is the best language, and those who speak it are superior to everyone else. I didn't grow up in the UK, but I can only imagine learning English here, the land of Shakespeare and the head of the British Empire, would have produced an enormous sense of superiority. If you wonder what I mean, I remember talking to an older British academic who confessed that growing up, he believed that the UK was the greatest country and the BBC was vastly superior to any other broadcasting entity. But now he realizes that neither of these things are true. The difficulty here is that while you might find that your health improves, yes, I do mean literal health, including but not limited to emotional and mental health. Many people live a conservative, isolationist religion behind often become less healthy in terms of connection to community because that results in isolation and anxiety. In a story titled Why Exvangelicals Are Seeking Therapy for Religious Trauma, which is subtitled Can Religion Give You PTSD, Stephanie Russell Kraft says the following, I spoke to more than a dozen former evangelicals for this story, each of them sharing unique stories of abuse and disillusionment with their church. A few asked that I keep their names confidential because they feared retaliation from family members, some of whom are involved in pro-Trump militia movements. But their story shared one factor. Despite no longer believing in hell or purity culture or the imminent rapture, they all struggled to overcome the toll those ideologies had taken on their minds and their bodies. As evangelicals, the people I spoke to had been raised to be suspicious of therapy. Now more and more of them are turning to mental health providers to help them forge a different path. Later in the article, she writes, One ex-evangelical woman who asked to remain anonymous recounted a panic attack she had the first time she had sex. At that point, she had left her church and no longer believed the many tenets of purity culture she had been taught as a child. And now there's a quote from the woman herself. It was a frustrating internal conflict, she said. I don't believe this anymore. 
So why do I feel guilty for something I don't believe is a sin? Do you see why Nietzsche is so right that learning to think differently is much easier than learning to feel differently? Well, the first is already a challenge. The second requires a long period of adjustment. Therapist Laura Anderson, quoted in the same article, says, Traditionally, people thought that if I change my beliefs, this doesn't impact me. But trauma is a very embodied thing. If I'm engaging in behavior that I was taught to be sinful with the consequence of hell, I know I can do it, but I might have a trauma response to it. While we've reached the end of today's episode, the topic of recovering from religious trauma will continue to be of future concern. As should be clear, it's a process, a long, ongoing process. If you enjoyed today's episode, please consider supporting the podcast at patreon.com slash onbecomingpodcast or through paypal.com or the PayPal app. The username for both is our email address, onbecomingpodcast at gmail.com. Or you can just follow us or click subscribe. I'm Dr. Bruce Ellis Benson, and I hope you'll join us for the next episode.